Welcome all to Into Deep. I'm your host, Jack Rowland. Hope you're all great out there surviving the winter months. It is pretty cold here. Today, we are joined by one of the all-time greats of psychedelic and sci-fi art, Roger Dean. Roger Dean's mesmerizing landscapes transport the viewer to another world of floating rocks, vivid colors, surreal arching rock formations, and futuristic architecture. With an incredibly successful career, stretching back to the 60s, Roger's work rose to prominence through the music industry, adorning album covers of Asia, Osibisa, and a long-standing collaboration with rock band Yes. His iconic style has been the source of inspiration for many and enjoyed by millions around the world. All right, please welcome to the show, the great Roger Dean. Is there a point to all this? I think we're getting in too deep. You don't apply. Bad luck. Well, I have one speed, I have one gear. Go, 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 Roger Dean, living legend. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. Uh, so so lovely to meet you. I've been um, a huge fan for for many many years. Um, so I think it's safe to say that you're basically the father of psychedelic landscapes, or or even sci-fi kind of landscapes. Um, your your style is. Uh, so iconic um it's inspired many over the years and been copied by many over the years yeah i'm I'm wondering if um if you wouldn't mind maybe just taking us back to the 60s kind of um where you first first began your creative journey and how you came to uh create this iconic style of yours ah well basically what i was doing at the royal college was essentially architecture hmm. in the furniture school i designed a piece of furniture that was called the sea urchin chair which was the shape of a sea urchin but it when you sat on it it adjusted to give you proper lumbar support so it was very comfortable but it always popped up into this sea urchin shape after you got up and that was designed in 1966 in its final form and it was exhibited for the first time in 1967, 3rd of January so that got a lot of publicity and apparently it was the inspiration for the beanbags which were designed and manufactured a few years later Right. Uh, yeah and at the same time I was making models of the architecture. I was researching basically the psychology of the built environment. Hmm. So that was my focus. And as a consequence of both of those projects, the first job I got on leaving college, it was a I was self-employed from the get-go, was to design the um discotheque at Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club. <clears throat> and they wanted a kind of landscape seating. And Ronnie Scott being Ronnie Scott, they asked me to do album covers. First one was for a, a rock band called The Gun, who they managed. So were you doing, uh, I suppose if you're doing a lot of designing, you're con- you were constantly drawing at, at that point, and that's that's how the, uh, the um, album cover designs came to be? My whole life I was constantly drawing. Hmm. So with with um your designs and I've I've looked at some of your architecture and um and this this 
almost these elements of biomimicry, kind of uh, looking to the, the natural world and things popping back into the shape and um, and being very uh, atypical of, of normal architecture for the time or, or, or even now. Uh, were your what were your inspirations around that time? Were you looking at a lot of the natural world, or were you pondering the future? The um, the shapes were came straight out of the research. Basically, mm. I'd had pretty much no preconceptions about shape, color, texture, anything. I was just trying to find out what kind of spaces made people feel comfortable, secure, happy. And at the same time, what kind of spaces made people feel uncomfortable, anxious, and distressed? And it all came from that. And the, the curves pretty much were defined by... we. I got nowhere with the first year of research until a friend took my questions and asked a bunch of kids <laughs> in mm. her classroom. And the kids were asked the same questions as the adults were. And they basically were what kind of spaces do you, would your ideal sleeping space be? I focused on that because that's where people feel their most need of security. And um, one child described a space that he could physically feel in the dark, there was nothing there. And had an entrance he could physically control and would be on eye level with anybody in his room so they couldn't loom over him. And that was an interesting thing. Um, I just copied the shapes. Mm. And those shapes seemed to have a big appeal to people. So I stuck with that. And as I extrapolated those responses into the whole of a domestic situation, bathrooms, kitchens, whatever, I was learning that basically what people needed was defendable space. Most of the research threw that up. Defendable space makes people feel good. What is defendable space was interesting. It was not always obvious. A lot of it was counterintuitive. Mm. So that was where I was going with that. Um, there was another big element that was aesthetic. So let's say that these, these weren't figures. These are just be using it for example but if 70 percent of the quality was about defendable space 20 or 30 percent was about an aesthetic inspiration right so the natural world was an inspiration hmm yeah so when you were younger did you have uh bigger pipe dreams of of being a, a grandiose architect and and designing large public spaces uh, when I was a kid, I got a, a comic. It was an English comic called The Eagle. Um, and there was a character in it called Dan Dare, Pilot of the Future. And seeing those interpretations of the future were, for me, a big inspiration. I mean, it's a comic, but I thought, wow, I, you know, that would be something I'd love to do, to design the future. You know, for that future to exist, Someone has to design it, or some many thousands of people, but it has to be wanted and worked for. It doesn't just happen. So, yeah, that was a good inspiration. I was also, at the same time, 
very interested in drawing and painting wildlife. Right, right. So, I mean, your your works are incredibly fut- futuristic. Um, at at the time, uh, how how were they received by the public? Once you started your album covers with Yes and things started getting out to the masses, um, I mean, did these make big kind of big waves at the time? Your your art was very, um, uh, like I said, very iconic and very visionary um, in the, its true sense. Yeah, it was fortunately. And thankfully, yeah, we got a very good response. Um, before I even started working with Yes, I did an album cover for a band called Osabisa. And the important thing for me of that is that several record stores really liked the cover so much, they made a big display of it. Mm. I mean, relatively speaking, it was an unknown band. Um, it was their first album. And not only did it make a big impact, that cover, but it got me a poster contract. And we, we sold a hell of a lot of posters. Um, yeah, the, uh, there was a magazine in England that was, I guess, the kind of flagship of the psychedelic movement called Oz. And it was called Oz because its management team was Australian. Right. <laughs> The art director of Oz was, I think he was either English or South African, but he was called Peter Lederber. And he set up a, a publishing company of posters called Big O Posters. And one of the first artists in that company was Martin Sharp, who was an Australian artist. They had a big Australian angle to it, but they did do mine. And we sold... Huge numbers. Great. Took my breath. Had no anticipation that that would happen. Hmm. Um, It meant that by the end of the 70s, and there's no way of knowing accurate figures because computer-driven accountings in those days, sometimes no bloody accounting at all. (laughs) But it was a reasonable sum to think we'd sold over 100 million units, posters, cards. We even did 60 million phone cards. You know, it was weird stuff, Mm. very big numbers. Um, And, yeah, it was was astonishingly humbling and flattering. I loved it. Mm. (laughs) I I love that your art career really, I mean, you became such an influential artist, but kind of outside of the art world. It it came in... Uh, the, through another door with, of the music industry. I mean, was kind of making it in through the galleries ever even, I mean, did that? Did you ever even bother with that kind of process or, or was it just things kind of unfolded naturally through the music industry? Um, it's interesting too because it wasn't just the art world that I wasn't really part of. When we did the publishing company, um, my first book, Views, we'd sold 80,000, which is quite a big number. Um, we'd sold 80,000 before any went into a bookshop. Mm. Wow. When they started going into a bookshop, which is about four months later, it went straight to number one in the Sunday Times bestseller list and was there for quite a while. So... <laughs> 
you know, we had weird reviews saying, we've never heard of the author, never heard of the publishing company. Is this a joke? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess the art world was not paying attention. And that was didn't bother me either. Um, I did have exhibitions in galleries. And they were very successful. Um, Two galleries had booked me in. One was the New York Cultural Center at Columbus Circle. I don't even think the building exists anymore. But that was amazing because it was a two-week exhibition. And so many people came. They extended it and extended it. And I had similar experiences in other exhibitions and these weren't galleries these weren't places where the work was for sale because i didn't want to sell it back then so these were usually small museums or bigger museums but they were not commercial galleries Um, as I was mentioning before, kind of coming of age and starting your career in the 60s, I mean, the 60s and 70s, but mainly the 60s just sounds like such an enviable time to be alive, just in- incredibly explosive for culture, uh, very, you know, just interesting musically and, and creatively. And it was such a, you know, kind of psychedelic uh, movement in that time. Um, you know, did, did living in that time really influence your work and also likewise, uh your work seems to have also really influenced the times. Um, what was what was it like, kind of uh, start starting out in that time? It, you're right. It was very exciting, and there were two very different views of the future hmm. at that time, and they were kind of interweaving. But it, both were exciting. One was that kind of super high tech version of, you know, the whole of the sixties was technology was was about people going to the moon right which they the end of the 60s um concord flying to new york in three hours all that was happening through the 60s when i was a student we went down to bristol to see concord being built so i was very engaged in that technological view of the future and at the same time you had that psychedelic uh, age of Aquarius thing coming mm-hmm. down the pipe. <laughs> it's, right. Both were happening and both were there. I mean, many years later, I was at a science fiction convention in um, Atlanta, Dragon Con, and I was very kindly taken to dinner by some engineers from NASA. And they had some friends there who were engineers from Skunk Works. And they told me that one of my album covers, the Budgie album cover, which had a seagull skull melded to the front end of uh, a Blackbird reconnaissance aircraft. And uh, I made a model of it as well as did a painting of it. And they told me that their big hangar, 600 foot long, had that plane painted all down the side. And I said, oh, my God, I'd love to have a photograph of that. And they said, no, no, not going to happen. We'd be arrested with <laughs> a camera in there. So, so, yeah, it was, you know, it was interesting going both ways. 
Hmm. They told me another story that the chief engineer was a fan, which was very, very lovely to hear. And they said that um, the profile of the Patriot drone, which they were building a long time ago, you know, 40, 50 years ago, was also based on uh, one of my drawings. Wow. <laughs> that must feel weird. <laughs> Art influencing oh, culture. <laughs> I yeah, bet. Um, I'd love to ask you about some of the themes in your work. I mean, they're they're so sci-fi, um, psychedelic colors. Uh, you know, it's fantasy, it's futurism. I mean, there's there's so many different, well, different um, periods of your work as well. But so so many different elements to it. Um, and I was I was wondering about um, how what. What what's kind of your um, process in, in in terms of inspiration? Are you are you really is most of your work inspired by you know the natural world and actually going out to places and extrapolating on them? Or I mean, are you are you, you strike me as someone who's a, a dense reader who who's quite interested in alternative concepts and you know you, you've got works with pyramids in there. There's a, a float, floating rocks almost this kind of these worlds where gravity is elusive. Um, what 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 is uh what is the bulk of your inspiration throughout the years? Um, there's lots of different sources of inspiration, hmm. and it, I don't go anywhere without a sketchbook. You know, if I'm going out to dinner, or even if I'm going, to, you know, sitting at a conference or a, something. I remember we had board meetings when I was working on a various projects. I would draw the whole time hmm. and it would worry that I wasn't paying attention, but I, I paid, you know, it, it's an aid to concentration, right? You know, drawing doesn't engage the whole of the brain. If I'm working, I do need a distraction so I can get on with the work. It's, it's an important part of it. So, uh, where to go with that? It's... <laughs> I suppose, um, you know, I, I mean, another, probably the most obvious thing that I instantly think of uh, when I look at your work is Alien Worlds. I mean, is, have you been a bit of a, um, have you had an obsession with aliens throughout your life or the... Uh, the... Oh, no, I, I, would, I would say no. It's, you know, some of my paintings... Even some of the ones that people consider the most fantastical, mm. there's almost nothing fantastical in them. There's, it all could be achieved. Obviously, if I'm painting a dragon, that's a different issue. But there's only a few, half a dozen dragons in three or 400 paintings. So it's most of it's taking things I've seen and rearranging them. Um, I was very lucky because... To the extent that the, you are saying the 60s was an amazing time, I went to art school in 1961. So for me, I was in the process of being training my creative skills, if you like, for the whole of the 60s. But prior to that, my dad being in the army, we spent a lot of time in Hong Kong. And that was amazing. I mean, Hong Kong was intense. In mm. retrospect, I'd have said it was like a two-year psychedelic trip. It was amazing. 
What 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 yeah, part I, of it was so psychedelic or so intense? Yeah, I mean it was it was just fabulous. I loved it. Hmm. Can't think of a better thing for a I was 12, 13, 14 while we were there. And it was just incredible. And I spent a lot of time walking around because Hong Kong wasn't built up to the degree it was it is now. And we could walk across the mountains into what was called the New Territories, and it was pretty much no roads in much of it. Hmm. So we walked everywhere. Great. Most weekends we would be hiking. Fantastic. Um, yeah. As your work's kind of spanned over many decades, have you felt that there's been any particular narratives that have unfolded as your work has progressed? Through your work? Narratives in the paintings. Right. Yeah. Hmm. At the moment, we're talking about doing, and it's not clear whether it's going to be a theatrical or a game or a film, but we are developing a story. We did it last year with a view to it being theatrical, and it was to be performed in the autumn in San Francisco. The organizers, bless them, overestimated what could be done in the very, very little time we had. And at the same time, I was doing two exhibitions and yes, we're on tour. Everything became impossible. Right. So we we'd said, okay, let's do this properly, not rush it. And that's where we are now. We're redoing that now. But yeah, but for various reasons, I've accumulated a series of stories which keep reappearing in painting. So the narrative is nudged forward, not necessarily continuously, but with big gaps, but still the same narrative in a, over a period of time with a number of paintings. Hmm. And do, do you think uh, in terms of a, a body of work or a series of painting, paintings or do you try to get these narratives or ideas um, nailed in, in one work usually? No, no, no. I don't, I, to be honest, I don't even really think about it. I'm doing other things when I'm painting. So a painting can come about from a, a variety of things. It could come from a sketch, an idea, a sketch, and it can be fully imagined before I even start, and then I can do it. Or it can be partially imagined, and I start by perhaps just playing, throwing paint around. Um, I can work very loose and let the moment take it somewhere. I can work very precisely. There's lots of different ways, and I experiment it with different ways, with different media. Um, if I'm not playing and I'm not having fun, it's not going to work. So I stop. Yeah, yeah, good, uh, good, good guide to go by. Yeah, I, I was curious yeah. about your approach because you know, I mean, so so many of your rock formations and mountainscapes are they're quite abstract. I mean, like the the huge loop kind of forms that are these these big rocky arches. I mean. I, I could imagine you just sitting there just kind of being really playful in, in the initial uh, stages of those and then uh, tightening them into actual uh, forms with, with weight behind them. Um, were, were, those, were those works very intuitive to, to begin with? Well, you say those works, but that covers a multitude right. of different approaches. 
Um, yeah, there is some where I just love the energy of something that's done in a couple of seconds, mm. far less a couple of minutes, you know. Right, and, right. Wow. You can do that 10 times and 10 of those are rubbish. Do it mm. 100 times, one might work. So I love doing that. And if one of them gets my imagination, I then, okay, the energy bit's done. Now let's make it real. So, <laughs> mm. or let's nail it down. So I might then put in light falling on this hugely energetic shape very carefully, like putting tiles on it or something. And, you know, knock out the background, put a sky in. So, yeah, I like that. I like working that way. But it's other times it's been a question of having a sketch and thinking, right, I'm going to make that work. this way. Hmm. And then bring it up and painting it. How, how about the natural world? Are, th are there any particular countries or landscapes that you've you've been drawn to, or that travel has really brought out the the creative juices out of you? Many. Hmm. Um, let's start with Hong Kong. Hong Kong is not a particularly lush climate. It's very dry, even though it, the air is humid. It's much like the Malibu Mountains in. Um, Los Angeles, I was really surprised when I was there how similar it was, that kind of sandstone, chaparral, no real forest, just bushes. It was reminding me of Hong Kong a lot. Mm. Um, but what I also saw in Hong Kong was the, you know, two, three thousand year old reproductions of two or three thousand year old watercolor landscapes of mountains and pine trees and waterfalls. And that did inspire me and impress me a great deal. So that was not so much that real landscape, but the art of that landscape. Hmm. When I started getting inspired by landscape, I guess it was Scotland first. We used to climb in Wales and Scotland when I was a student. Every holiday we could. And that was fantastic. Um, and then America, the deserts of America. So a lot of those arches in America did appear. Bryce Canyon mm. has appeared in several of my paintings. Right. Familiar glyphs and, yeah, I, they have been very inspirational. Yeah, I've definitely picked up some uh, Bryce Canyon vibes and Arches National Park. I mean, the, nat the natural um, landscapes of uh, North America are just mind-blowing. I did, did it a few years ago and just been a, a huge source of inspiration for myself. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny, uh, you mentioning Hong Kong, um, you know, I spent a year in Japan and um, <clears throat> I saw a lot of woodblock prints and, and a lot of them really reminded me of your works, This uh, these beautiful seepy um, skies and, and things. And, um, and even a lot of your floating mountains really reminded me of, uh, you know, uh, very calming, beautiful Zen gardens or... Um, uh, what do you call those uh, bonsai trees and thing, things like that? Um, so yeah, a, a lot of um, Asian influence now that I kind of think about it. Well, interpretation at least. <laughs> oh, influence is a good word. It works. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, and of course, we were looking at bonsais in Hong Kong. I mean, the Chinese had them too. They didn't call them bonsai, but they had miniature gardens, and you could buy 
little figures and bridges and pagodas to go in these bonsai gardens. The Japan, Japanese ones are more aesthetically austere. Hmm. They don't go in for figures so much. And I love the Japanese ones. So it's, but it was, yeah, the experience of them as a living miniature was fantastic. Mm, mm. Also had the other side of that coin, the first bonsai that I, I read that the first bonsai were actually birch, mountain birch that naturally grew very, very small, um, <clears throat> typically three or four foot for a 50-year-old tree. And in Scotland, you have some of that. In the very north of Scotland, there are silver birch that are clearly very mature trees and very small. They're not, you know, pot size, but they're, you know, something you could encompass as a human scale. Hmm. Uh, yeah, they were beautiful. And, of course, they're also in a mossy landscape. So you get that other miniaturized view. And there's a place in Scotland, uh, Sullivan, Sullivan, fantastic mountain range, Stack Polly. I'm trying to remember all the mountains because we climbed and walked all around there. And it's full of miniature landscapes. You know, you look across it and you see thousands of lakes, but all of them are tiny, you know. Hmm. They're not puddles. You don't want to step in one thing thinking it's a puddle. Right. <laughs> they might be only 20 or 30 feet across or maybe 50 feet, but they're small. Hmm. It's all miniature. And you'll see miniature islands in them with miniature trees. So it's fantastic. Hmm. I'm wondering whether you could um, uh, expand on some of um, just one or two of your works uh, of, of kind of my, my favorite uh, pieces, you know. Um, one, one of, uh, you know, your, your works are so uh, colorful, but, uh, you know, sometimes you also use a very limited palette. Um, the work Relayer seemed to be quite a, um, an interesting, different um, uh, direction at the time of, of that work. A really limited palette, very architectural. Um, what were some of the uh, ideas behind that piece? Um it came out of a sketch in my sketchbook when I was a student. So it had a, a quite a long gestation period. Mm. It was, um, and it was also um, very much about being in Canterbury Cathedral and seeing the fabulous geometry, that incredible intuitive engineering, the, the Gothic cathedrals have and just wondering if they moved even more independently of mm. the restraints. I mean, those, the Masons who built those were unbelievably talented. Uh, the quote from the Masons who built the very first Gothic Cathedral, which is in Paris, Saint-Denis, and it was um, an Abbot Sugar who commissioned them. And they said that we were building something so audacious, men will think we're mad. And I loved that. I love <laughs> that 
motivation to do that because they were invented. They didn't evolve from church architecture. Church architecture tended to be very monastic and cave-like, really. And then this abbot saw stained glass and he wanted to build a palace of light. So the inspiration for these things and the invention of them and then the unbelievably skilled engineering that got them built it's pretty much never been matched hmm. anywhere in the world or any time. You know, in terms of scale and weight of material, the py pyramids take a lot of beating, but they don't have that fantastic scale and lightness and skill in the in the in the mathematics mm. the pyramids have also um, made many appearances in your work throughout the years um was uh you know um pondering few, not okay sure right i mean there was the uh the asia pyramid i think um was probably the most prominent one um was that has that been a, a source of uh pondering of you know how they were built and uh and everything for you as the the mystery of the pyramids I think it's simpler than we think. <laughs> we tend to very clever, but simple. I mean, for example, people have been wondering about how amazingly precise the baseline is on a, on a pyramid. How on earth did they manage to get it? So it's accurate to a thousandth of an inch, that horizontal that it's built on. And the answer is clever, but simple. A little trench with water in it. So at both ends, they know exactly the height of the water, and it's the same. So the water made the level, and it is absolutely precise. It, in a way, it's a, it's a leap of imagination, but it is very, very simple. Mm, makes sense. <laughs> and the building of them is simple too, you know, a huge amount of labor. I don't believe it was built by slave labor. I think it was built by people who were inspired and excited to be involved in it. Hmm. But it was physically hard work, but it was not impossibly hard work. Right, right. Really not. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure if this is a, a something that uh, you don't mind going into at all, but um, I was wondering about the 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 Avatar saga that went down. Um, I recently had a look back at... Uh, just some snapshots from the film Avatar, and um, I heard I heard that there was uh, some possible plagiarism issues. But n now that I've really gone back and looked, there is absolute like the whole world seems to be modelled off your creative practice. I mean, how 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 did that feel? Well, two it felt two things. Um, one reaction was very negative. I thought, my God, they've plundered my life's work for this. Mm. And the other was, my God, my work looks fantastic on the big screen. I mean, it looked great, I have to say. I'm not sure if you want to hear that, but, yeah, it was an incredibly yeah. visual, beautiful, beautifully visual film. But Well, they, we'd set about suing, mm. um, and we had a judge who ruled that he saw no similarities, but he jumped through a few hoops to get to that position, and... We had one copyright academic immediately write saying the judge got it wrong. 
yeah, I think that's right. The judge got it wrong. But we just had no more resources to go on. And my lawyer said, I might need to find some sum. And I forget why it was, but it was about a one and a half million dollars in 30 days if I wanted to pursue this. And there was just no way at that time. So nowadays it would be different. There's ways and I, I know more about doing that. But yeah, did they copy? The answer, in my view, is of course they did. Yeah, I think it's undeniable. I mean, the more I was looking at it, I mean, even the dragons that they fly have that, um, the pattern work in the wings seems to be um, pattern work that you've done. The huge um, arches that are also covered with kind of moss, you've got floating rocks, you've got waterfalls coming down. I mean, it's, I I found it really, uh, it just seems like it all came down to one judge, didn't it? (laughs) Well, let me explain that. It's too boring to go into too much detail, but mm. I'll, I'll give you it in a nutshell. They didn't defend themselves on the basis of saying we didn't copy. Mm. They didn't make copying either. I have to make that clear. Their position was essentially we didn't copy, but even if we did, we only copied things that in law we're entitled to copy, i.e. things you yourself copied from nature. That was their position. Now, what the judge did is interesting. He summarized the basic copyright law, which says, if an ordinary person can see a substantial similarity, then it's a copy. Hmm. So we had three million people who saw a substantial similarity. You know, there was no way that could have been their defense that they didn't copy. They, you know, three million people saying a substantial similarity. Then you had the the issue about it being they only copied things they copied from nature required a lot of me showing six or seven points they copied faithfully that they didn't that I didn't copy from nature I changed now the judge on that first thing said the works taken as a whole if an ordinary person can see a substantial similarity it didn't allow for explanation or detail so he dismissed some of my evidence on the basis that it was explanation and detail because that is not how you do a normal copyright thing. You have to do the works taken as a whole. But as I said, this wasn't a normal copyright defense. Their defense was that they only copied things that I copied from nature. And all my detail and explanation was to show how it, they copied things that I changed from nature. Mm. Uh, so I, I think it was a flawed ruling. Mm. I mean, federal judge. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, I mean, the film, you know, I'm sure you don't love hearing this, but the film looks fantastic. And it, it just, it's just such a shame that uh, a film that I think they grossed almost like three billion, like in the billions. It's just such a shame that they didn't actually uh, include um, one of the main sources of inspiration in that, um, whether it's consulting or even just uh, 
even just uh yeah i don't know uh, crediting you or, or however however that comes so yeah it's a real shame um, uh, that the judge didn't see the, well, the correlation the production designer himself acknowledged that he studied my work and referenced it in the making of the film and he made a comment like floating mountains where else would you go you know it was mm. yeah um, you had an uh, exhibition um, last year, I saw. Um, I think it was at the Chambers Project. Is that correct? Uh, last year was a good busy year. I had four. <laughs> oh, four. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, you're, you haven't slowed down at all. Hey, I mean, I've, seen, I've also seen that you're still working with Yes and still making album covers for them. Is that also correct? Yeah. 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 Wow. Fan- I mean, fantastic. How, how, how did your show go? How, how, how was that? Um, I, well, let me tell you which they were. We, uh, Michael Pierce um, curated a show called Other Worlds, and he had a couple of mine in, but it was multiple artists. Then my daughter and I did a show at Hate Street Art Center. I saw her work. It's beautiful. Yeah, and mm. then we both did a show at the Chambers Project in Grass Valley, which was enormous fun. I love that place. Um, and at the same time, we had um, a relatively permanent show at Trading Boundaries in mid-Sussex in England. So, yeah, it was a busy year. In addition, <laughs> we had a traveling show with Yes. So, oh, yeah. wow. How, how, how does a traveling show work? Is that a, basically an exhibition that goes along with their tour? Yeah, mm. yeah. Fantastic. So, it's, you know, it's a few hours before the show. Hmm. It's, it's packed up by the end of the show, yeah. so you can't hang around afterwards and see it. But yeah, it's good, good fun. Unfortunately, because of the chaos of the time, I wasn't with them. But this summer, starting at the end of September, I'm going to be with them on tour. Fantastic. Are you considered part of Yes? Are you are you part of the band? Is that official? No, 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 no. no. Right. <laughs> I'm honoured to work with them, but I'm not part of the band. Yeah, yeah. How has it been um, being so linked to the the music industry? I mean, uh, being such a Im- important um, artist uh, of of many rock bands and and influential rock bands. I mean, you must have had a bit of a a taste of what it's like being a bit, you know being a rock star, right? Around that t- <laughs> throughout this. I mean, it's yeah. It, it seems like a really um, Exciting, exciting way to, uh, <laughs> to have an art career. It has some fantastic advantages. One of the things that, um, you know, when I was starting out, the art world was immensely dismissive of skill. Yeah, it feels like it's that way now as well sometimes. <laughs> Very much so. Mm. So craftsmanship was a big issue with the art world. They didn't want to know. And um, in the commercial art world, it was full of art directors who, kn- who knew best. And working with bands, I was working with people who were not only immensely talented and creative, but they respected creativity and craftsmanship because they practiced it themselves. Mm. So it was a very good world. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's a very good world to work in. Yeah. Excuse me. Kombucha. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it. 
Um, yeah, I, I, uh, like, like I said, I checked out um, your daughter's work. Uh, it must be um, a wonderful thing to, to see the, uh, the, the Roger Dean flame kind of get, uh, get carried through. And, and her work is beautifully unique as, as well. And uh, you know, did, did you spend much time kind of um, uh, drawing or painting or, or, or te- teaching your daughter at all? Or did she um, kind of just pick it up on her own? own uh, accord well you would think so wouldn't you but no <laughs> she she wouldn't allow it yeah um, she was very happy to um uh teach me mm. <laughs> and and able to as well actually because she did something you don't see a lot of in my work and that was that she was very interested in anatomy right so she would look at my my dragon and say dad that shoulder is in the wrong place. It should be here. And the other one doesn't line up. You need them to be connected. So she'd redraw it and she would be right. So that was good. When she was little, and I mean very little, she would never allow me to say, do it like this. It was always, she would sit with me when she was tiny and I'd be working on my desk. She would be sitting on my desk and we'd both be listening to the fantastic Mr. Fox or something like that on audio. And I'd be drawing and she'd be drawing. So she would be there. But if I had the temerity to suggest a different line on her work, that wasn't allowed. Yeah. But she did work on She, um, I've got a photograph of her literally aged just over two painting the blue background to the painting that's called The Guardians, which was the cover of the Yes reunion album. Love that piece. Yeah, it's beautiful. So she did the, she did the dark blue in the structure. That's still showing. Um, yeah, she's worked on a lot of mine. I've never worked on any of hers. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, what what are you working on at the moment? Have, have you uh, got much planned for in terms of exhibitions or, or big projects or anything for the rest of the year? Yes. Um, as I say, I'm going on the road with Yes in mm. September in the US. Um, I've got, um, fingers crossed, we're hoping to be building something eventually this year. Mm. We're hoping to be able something um and that theatrical project is nudging forward uh i'm drawing and painting and designing as much as ever i guess yeah fantastic is that building project an architectural piece or you are yeah yeah fantastic wow great that sounds uh really really exciting (laughs) yeah yeah i'm really really excited Great. Um, also, just just to um, just to finish, I was I, you know like like I said, I'm just such a fan, and your career has just been an incredible, incredibly inspiring, and um, I always love seeing art, you know artists that can actually really make it big and influence the culture. You know, um, do you have any uh, career advice for for young artists at all? Well, there is always some advice that always works. 
and that is develop the craft skills. And whether you want to be a sculptor or a painter or a fabric designer or whatever, it is always a very good thing to draw. Mm. Drawing is the core skill you really need to communicate. If I'm designing a building, if I'm starting a painting, a drawing allows me to pass on the information. The basic difference between design and art is that an artist can start with a drawing and finish with a painting and do it all himself. The thing about design is you have to be really good at communicating because someone else executes it. So if you can't communicate, you're going to be disappointed in the results. And drawing is a big part of that communication. So practice, practice, practice. And I'm going to misquote the guitarist. I forget. I won't even mention. But he said, he was asked how he got so good, and he said, well, I practice all the time. And you can't practice all the time unless you love it. So you have to love what you're doing. Um, and then practicing all the time not only comes easy, it's what you want to be doing. It's like a twitch or a fidget. You just keep doing it. Um, so that's what I would say. Learn the, the craft skills. Creativity comes from allowing it to arrive. I mean, one of the best lessons I learned in that process, because I've been asked all my life, where do your ideas come from? And I was talking to a guy called Ramesses. He had a band, and I did an album cover for him. I don't know when, 1970, 71, something like that. And we'd been talking, and he had a journalist. I keep repeating this story because it's so illustrative of how it works. And the journalist said to him, Ramesses, where do you get your ideas? And he said, well, when I'm sitting quietly like this, they come from over here. And we all cracked up laughing. And I knew it was true. That's exactly how it feels. The ideas come largely fully formed. They're not a mathematical, analytical process that may or may not work, but it is not easy and it's not quick. Them just coming and allowing space for them to just come is how it works. And you need to make space for that. Uh, when I was once asked by students, and I get asked by students a lot, to give talks, sometimes they just want me to show pictures and sometimes they want me to explain how I learned to draw or design or have ideas. And what I would say there is I had an experience in my first term at art school and I was ill. I had a heavy cold. I went home and my tutor said, don't waste your time, draw this. And he gave me a piece of wood, a piece of dead tree. And I took it home and we normally drew in periods of time that were the same as at school, 45 minutes or 90 minutes. 90 minutes for a double period, 44 min 45 minutes for a normal period. 
And we've been hardwired to start and finish in that time. And I spent a lot more time on this drawing. <coughs> Excuse me. I spent probably, uh, first of all, six, eight hours. I was am amazed at what was happening on the paper. And by the time I finished, 14, 16 hours later, it was took my breath away. That I'd done that was incredible. Um, and I was listening all the time to what we now call talk radio. There's comedy shows, news, all kinds of stuff and plays. And the three lessons that were I learned there was you have to put in the time. Each drawing deserves the time. I do hundreds of sketches that may take seconds, but if you're doing a drawing, you need to put in the time. You need to take your mind out of the equation because otherwise it'll keep interfering. So if I'm listening to a play on the radio, I can put in an hour and a half, two hours, four, five hours without it seeing a strain. I'm just doodling. Taking your mind out of it is important for the creative process as well as the mechanical process. And of course, in the end, you've got something you're not only proud of, but you get a good reaction to it. So that, that's what I said, mm. you know, take the time. That's the key. Yeah. And allow space. Take your mind out of the equation. Don't think about what you're doing. Uh, the Japanese have a wonderful saying about that. If you're learning a martial art like kendo, which is about the sword technique, is that you train the hand so the hand trains the mind. And that's absolutely true of learning to draw or whatever. Mm. It's, you train the hand, the hand trains the mind. If your hand is training the mind and you are getting out of that zone where you're worrying and thinking, the ideas flow. Mm. Um, they flow. Yeah, ideas arriving. I love that. Uh, almost like becoming a finely tuned antenna, <laughs> you know, to ready, ready to receive. Yeah, um, that's what you need to do. Yeah. And meditation is good. Taking your mind out of it is good. You know, we we not only can do two things at once, we have to do two things or three things or five things at once. Mm. With when when you talk, you're taking your mind out of it with um with uh, pure inspiration arriving to you. I mean, do you do you believe that big you know beautiful ideas or or inspiration or creativity um, arriving? Do you, do you think there's uh, some kind of spiritual nature to that? Do you think there's something op operating that we are just uh, if if you can take your mind out, you can just receive and and process. Well. Whether or not it's a spiritual process, it is very similar to spiritual processes. It, it's, there's a lot in common with the Zen teaching. I wouldn't go as far as to say it's a Zen process, but if you are an adept at Zen, you will recognize the process. So for sure, mm. I guess that's my sure. And it's, it, it doesn't take, it's not a miserable austere process it's a process that's immensely rewarding and fun yeah love that absolutely love that <laughs> yeah you have to trust it trust the process it will not let you down yeah 
Well, Roger, um, thank you so much for coming on for a chat. It's been an absolute pleasure meeting you and your work has given me so much joy over the years and I know it's given so, so much of the world just, again, so much inspiration and it, it really uh, it really does make... make um, it breeds creativity out of people, I think. It really gets your mind thinking and... Uh, different concepts are always kind of enough information to get you wondering about the future or or aliens or you know all sorts of concepts and uh for that i thank you so much and i uh, love love the work that you do so thank thanks thanks for making the time thanks and you're going to send me a copy absolutely of course i will <laughs> thank you very Perfect. much roger and thanks everyone for listening thank <laughs> take care thank you very much 